The following is brought to you by the Leave It in the Ring Podcast Network. All boxing, no filter. Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It in the Ring Network. My guest on this episode is one of the foremost attorneys and managers in the game, Mike Barreo. Uh, we spoke about two of Mike's heavyweights who scored big wins in the last few months, Charles Martin and Robert Hellanius. Also talked about the future plans uh, for a few other fighters Mike represents, including middleweight Matt Korobov and heavyweight Frank Sanchez. Uh, spoke about Mike's background and participation in tough man contests in his youth and uh, how he met and came to represent his first major fighter, heavyweight uh, Jameel Big Time McCline. Uh, got into his major role in getting McCline, Shannon Briggs, Monty Barrett, and Ray Austin uh, shots at the heavyweight crown in the same year. Uh, he also told me some great stories about dealing with major promoters Cedric Kushner and Don King that are great. And uh, finally, he went into what a typical day in the life of a boxing manager is like, which is really cool. But really great conversation, and I hope you enjoy. It is my distinct pleasure to have as my guest on this episode a 2019 New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame inductee, a lawyer, actor, screenwriter, poker playing ace, and boxing manager extraordinaire. Uh, I'd like to welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast my good friend, Mr. Mike Barreo. How are you, brother? Uh, good, good. Thanks so much for having me. This is a real honor. Yeah, man. Listen, I'm, I'm excited to have you. Trying to get you on for a while, but... Uh, just so wanted to congratulate you, man. You got uh, two two heavyweights with huge wins in uh, you know what were purported to be eliminator bouts. Me on the show, so what's that? Hello. I said Joe Rogan never had me on the show. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> I said Joe Rogan never had me on the show, so I'm forced to do this. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, Joe, Joe is a slightly bigger audience than my show, but you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> What are you, you going to do? He's been around for a little longer. I didn't do Fear Factor, so. But, no, uh, it's great to be here, Kurt. Thanks again, buddy. Cool, man. Well, let's let's talk about. Uh, let's get into you know what, what what just recently happened. Well, first of all, first of all, let's let's get to what's important. How are you? And how's the family? How's how's the trips doing? Everyone's doing great. Thank God. Um, you know, and I hope people out there are doing well because it's uh, going through a tough time right now. You know, my wife's a nurse. And she sees firsthand how tough a time they're having in New York and especially, you know, here in New Jersey um, on the front line. So, you know, I just hope everyone out there is doing well that's listening and we get through this quickly and safely and and we get back to doing what we all do on a regular basis. And that includes boxing, which is very important, you know, to both you and I. Absolutely. And absolutely. And just before... uh... This whole thing hit, man. You were on a roll. You had uh, your man uh, Prince Charles Martin, who you who you worked with uh, pretty much from day one, right? You've uh, you work with him. Yep, worked with Charles from the amateurs. We hooked up, and we had a great, uh, you know, a great run together. That included, you know, Michael King. May he rest in peace. He was um, founder of the All American Heavyweights, and of course, people know him from. The Oprah Winfrey Show, Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy—that's uh, you know—he he created those three shows and an incredible legacy. He ultimately sold the company for billions of dollars, 
And um, he had a real passion for boxing. He loved boxing. He loved the sport. And he went on a mission to find the next great American heavyweight. And, you know, he went to every sport, the NFL, to professional football. And he was looking for that, you know, diamond in the rough. And he had quite a few athletes go through the program. One of them was Dominic Brazil, who ultimately went um, to represent the U.S. in the Olympics. And the second and third alternates, I was trying to sign Brazil and, you know, I thought I had a good shot, but Al Heyman came in and picked them up and they had a great career together. But I ended up signing the second and third alternate, the first and second alternate, excuse me. The first alternate was a guy named John Hamm who played, I think, for the Atlanta Falcons and the other was Charles Martin. Uh, I think John got to about seven and zero, and he ended up losing to Daniel Martin's. Um, and yeah, he, that's another loss ended up retiring, but just a great guy, great athlete. And the other was, um, Charles who ended up going to 21 and 0. uh, we got to number one in the world. And unfortunately, you know, Michael Pat passed away just before, before realizing his dream of having a heavyweight champion and, uh, Charles ended up becoming a heavyweight champion. And it was the byproduct of the all American heavyweights and what Michael King was doing. And, you know, um, I think he would have done very big things. He would have been right in the mix with everything going on now with Fox and the zone and showtime. Let's, let's, let's take a step back. When you talk about the all American heavyweight program, what, what was that all about? I mean, he, so he recruited guys who, you know, were, were in other sports and didn't quite make it and, and felt like, you know, they that he could make them into heavyweights. Like, wh- where did he have the camp? I mean, go to the background of that a little bit. It's really interesting. Well, that was, you know, uh, had a um, number of people that were, were working for him in that program. And one of those guys was a fellow named Paul Kane. And he still works with me and Charles. And, um, you know, he takes care of all our logistics. He's just takes care of whatever needs to be done with the camp and all this sort of thing. And he's just a wonderful, positive person to have around. He's really great to have around. And um, he was in charge of all American heavyweights. And, yeah, they went around the country just recruiting the best athletes that, you know, maybe, you know, they were out of football because of an injury or, you know, out of the NBA because uh, they got cut or whatever, but great American athletes. And, and, you know, Michael, like I, is a believer that so goes the heavyweight division, goes the sport. And I was a big fan of Muhammad Ali and Mike Tyson and some of these heavyweight champions. And, um, um, yeah, they just went out and recruited all over the uh, United States. And they had them in, um, in California and had a big training camp. And they weeded it out and they were trying to get, uh, you know, to, um, to the Olympics, you know, and start from the ground up and, he had an idea that he wanted to restructure Aiba and, um, you know, the way they develop uh, the talent in the amateur program in the United States. He thought it was broken, a broken system. And, you know, he tried very hard to get at the ground level um, there so that they can, you know, you can, you can create more recognizable, well-known American stars, you know, uh, like a Sugar Ray Leonard, uh, for example, and that was the genesis of it. Uh, and then, you know, it, uh, boxing is what it is. He found that, you know, the, the folks, um, at the amateur program, you know, 
felt they had a good thing going and they didn't want to change the way things were. So it was very difficult uh, to fix that part of the sport. And then, you know, after the, I guess it was the 2012, I think, yeah, 2012 Olympics, he sort of segued into the uh, professional ranks and started a promotional company and was headed in that direction. Right. So with, with Charles Martin, you, you, you got him, uh, you know, unfortunately, Mr. King did not get to see uh, him fight uh, Czar Glasgow in January, uh, 2016. Um, big fight at the Barclays. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, Glasgow, you know, like Martin won it because Glasgow's knee went out. But anyone who saw that fight, I mean, Martin was winning every round of that fight. <laughs> I think he might have yeah, stopped Glasgow. I had him up three zero. I think that that was going to be the result. You know, I didn't. I didn't think. Start hitting. We'll never know what, what it is. What it is. And yeah, you're right. He didn't get the credit that he deserved with that win. But um, you know, life goes on. Right. 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 Well, you know, obviously, a few months after that, you had him uh, go across the pond and take on a, a young heavyweight by the name of Anthony Joshua in London. Um, pretty bold move. Um, talk about uh, making that fight and, and, and how it played out. Well, you know, a lot of people look at that, and Charles has gotten heavily criticized because when you look from the outside in, you know, everyone says it was just a money grab. He went, showed up, you know, and it was all for purposes of just making a few bucks and getting out of Dodge, and nothing could have been further from the truth. You know, when we made the fight, I looked at Anthony Joshua and, you know, the, the, we won an IBF title. The money that was being offered in the United States wasn't, you know, uh, knocking anyone's socks off. It certainly was uh, similar for Charles. And I looked at Joshua. I looked at his amateur bouts. I've, you know, been working with heavyweights for 25 years, better part of 25 years. Um, I participated in tough man contests myself. So I think I have a good idea of, you know, what makes a good heavyweight, what doesn't. And I saw so many flaws in Anthony Joshua and particularly his chin. I just didn't think he had a good chin. And I know one thing, Charles has a great chin and a great punch. So I thought, you know what, we're going to go to London. We're going to make a lot of money. We're going to, that, you know, could potentially be the next Frank Bruno or the next Audley Harrison. And we're going to get paid to do it. You know, what I didn't expect was a number of things. One was that Charles would go into that fight at about 30% of himself. And, you know, someone will say, well, look, if he went in and he wasn't 100%, then it was a money grab. No, because even at 30 or 40%, you know, I was naive enough to think, and so was he, that, you know what, we're going to get this guy in the chin, we're going to clip him, and it's going to be over the first time he gets hit. Now, in hindsight, we were both wrong and right. Cause in hindsight, I don't think I was wrong. You know, I don't think Joshua takes a great punch. And when he does get hurt in a fight, you know, I don't know going forward. I think he's been exposed a little bit by Ruiz and I, people fighting him in the future are probably going to take advantage of that, you know, and we were right on in that regard. What I was wrong about is Anthony Joshua has a lot more heart and gumption than I predicted. And you saw that in the Klitschko fight. I picked Klitschko to knock Joshua out. I was close because he got him, I think, in the sixth round. And I never in a million years thought that Joshua could recover from a knockdown like that. And in that fight, he showed really what he was made of, which, you know, he's got big balls and, and, you know, he's game to win. So 
we went in, he wasn't a hundred percent healthy. Shame on us, you know, on all of us, on me, on Charles, but sincerely, even not being a hundred percent, we thought we were going to get in there and knock him cold and come back with our first title defense, you know, and that would have been that, but it didn't work out that way, you know, and if we did it again. Would we do it over? Probably, you know, it'd probably postpone the fight, but you know, it is what it is. There's, there's no crying about it now. You know, it's well into the past. It's been four years now and Charles is now back in the number two position and, you know, hopefully is going to get one more crack at him because he believes in his heart of hearts. He will win. He can beat Joshua. And that's the only reason he's told me, he's told other reporters that he's still doing this because he thinks he will beat Anthony Joshua. It's not about the money. Charles is a very wealthy man. He just wants to do it. And that's why he's still doing this. And, you know, we'll see, you know, time will tell, but, um, sure. If you watch that fight, Charles was never hurt in the fight. He went down. It was a balance shot. He got hit with hell of a shot, but he wasn't hurt. He wasn't dazed. You know, he was smiling. He was just, you know, a little bit out of his element. And, and I think not going in hundred percent healthy and then seeing the, you know, the thousands and thousands of fans and all booing and all, you know, it was the perfect storm for that performance. And if you, if you look at Joshua's history, the first round, he wasn't on his home playing field with everyone cheering for him and all everything on his side, the press, the media, the first time he came to the U S he gave a very similar performance against Andy Ruiz, you know, cause he completely flopped that night. So there's set, there's something to be said for going overseas and, and, you know, doing something and being in an environment that you've never experienced, yeah, you know, and I think Joshua proved that for sure. Definitely tough to yeah, win on the road. So it's tough to win on the road, but it's more than that. There's just something different. And I noticed, you know, when I go something different about the food, the water, something different in the air, it just doesn't feel the same. You know, I'm sure you've been there cause you've been all over the world with your fighters. It doesn't feel the same. Something feels off and you know, it just, it takes, getting accustomed to you know we'll see if joshua ever comes back to the u.s hopefully he does but um you know it's a it's a tough thing to do and so instead of being lambasted the way charles has been for going over there and and making his first defense against a universally recognized number one contender he should have been you know applauded you know in my judgment but you know like i said there's nothing we can do about it now it is what it is but he's back in a great Space. He's back at number two at and out over Gerald Washington as the uh, co-main to Fury and Wilder, and you know he was in front of a lot of eyeballs, a big audience. He had a great reception, and he's back on top. And and you know I believe he's going to win the title again. Right, right. So so that that's it. He got the win February twenty second. Uh, you know Wilder Fury undercard. Yeah. Now he is at the number two position in the IBF, and you know the the IBF mandatory is due. The mandatory is Kubrat Pulev, um, and that that seems to be the next fight up for uh, Anthony Joshua. Um, so, at the number two spot, would he be the next mandatory, or or when you're in the two spot in the BF, how does it work? Well, look, my understanding is now that we're number two, we're going to sit here for a minute. Because, you know, who knows what can happen. This is boxing. I've seen the craziest things happen. Um, you know, you probably already know Pulef has been mandatory twice before. 
before, excuse me, once with Clutch, once with Joshua. And for whatever reason, I think he was, I don't know, was he injured? I can't remember, but... Yeah, he got injured and Tackum took his place uh, a couple of years ago. Correct. So twice he was in the mandatory position for whatever reason, fight didn't happen. So if that were to occur again, you know, I I think they'd move on to the next available guy, right? And that would be Charles. Um, Alternatively, if Joshua decided, you know what, I'm not going to face... Pulev, I'm going to go ahead and fight Usyk, or you know what, I made a deal to t- fight Tyson Fury, or whatever. You know, uh, Klitschko's coming out of retirement. I don't know. I'm just getting crazy. But anything, if for whatever reason Joshua doesn't fight Pulev, well, then you know, I, I suppose it would be um, uh, Martin um, and Glasgow all over again, where the number one Pulev would fight the number two Mark Martin for the vacant title. So. You know, we'll have to wait and see what happens. And um, hopefully, you know, we get a little lucky again and, and get into a situation where maybe we're fighting for a pool left for a vacant or or whatever. But, you know, that we're going to have to wait and see. Right. So let me, let's talk about the other uh, big win you had in, in, in recent times. Uh, the, the Nordic Nightmare, Robert Hellenius, uh, pulled a huge upset at Barclays against uh, Adam Konaski. Um, stopped him in the fourth round. Now, um, people were saying, I mean, I, I know in, in the lead up, they were talking about this being a, a WBA eliminator. And now that we look in the ratings, Robert is now the gold uh, champion, the WBA gold champion, um, one of four champions in the WBA. So what what do you understand is, is Robert's position? Is, is he... Uh, you know, if, if the mandatory comes around, is he going to get that shot or, or how's it going to work? Well, first of all, you know, I just want to uh, um, mention Marcus Sunman, who's the manager of uh, of uh, Robert Hellenius and a great friend of mine. And um, I happen to be the advisor to uh, Marcus and, and Robert. Um, I think I've played a, you know, a, a, an integral role, obviously, bringing him to the United States. I actually brought Robert to the United States years and years ago when I was um, supplying content to Epics. And we did a few of uh, his fights here in the United States. But um, but as it relates to your question, uh, you know, I spoke to the WBA uh, just before the fight with Kalanaki, and I asked how that would work. And he gave me the same answer uh, before. The WBA gave the same answer both before and after the fight. And that was that, look, um, you know, just because you win or if you win tonight, it's not a foregone conclusion. It's still going to have to go. Uh, for a vote in front of the uh, board members. But, you know, my understanding is that the vote would be between uh, the champions, which is uh, Char, Trevor Bryan, and Robert Hellenius. Now, you know, just sort of think, sitting here and thinking logically and reasonably, you know, Char hasn't fought in three years. Bryant hasn't fought in two years. And Robert just knocked out the universally recognized pretty much number one contender, Adam Kalaki was 20 and 0 and, you know, one of the most highly regarded guys rated across the board. So, you know, if, if you're voting on that, I mean, I ask you, would you vote for, would you vote for one of two guys that haven't fought in two or three years respectively and have never beaten anyone near the caliber of Adam Kalaki or would you vote for Robert Hellenius? So when that time comes, I think the WBA is going to do the right thing and, we're going to vote uh, for Robert to get the opportunity 
to fight uh, for the the super champion, I guess it is, which is Joshua. Um, first, they've got to do, I suppose, the IBF. Then comes the WBO, and then comes the WBA. So no matter what, you know, it's probably going to be a bit of a wait, and Robert will probably get a fight before that. But um, again, you just never know. You know, you just never know in boxing. Right. I mean, <laughs> he could end up fighting him. He could end up fighting him next. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Well, I mean, listen. I mean, when when guys haven't fought in 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 two and three years, I mean, in all honesty, they shouldn't have world titles. But <laughs> um, I mean, obviously, I mean, listen. If, if Robert has to fight either one of those guys, I'd make him a big favorite to beat either Char or uh, or or Bryant. I mean, neither of those guys, like you said, have really their 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 resumes aren't exactly stellar. So. Robert's been in there with some of the best in the world. We looked at the history. Robert's had some amazing wins, you know, very impressive wins over guys like Sam Peter, Lamont Brewster, Sergey Lykovich. That's three former world champions right there. You know, he's got the win over Kalanaki. He took a fight against Dillian White on literally like 10 days notice or something, you know, ridiculous. Um, and he went 12 rounds with a guy, you know, despite taking the fight on incredibly short notice. Uh, he's, you know, he's. There's no question. He's one of the top fighters in the world. I, I think, I think, you know, Styles make fights, and no one gave him a prayer against Josh, against uh, Kalinaki, excuse me, except for myself, his manager Marcus, and the rest of his team, his coach, and uh, probably would be the same going into a Joshua fight. But Styles make fights, and you see, I mean, Kalinaki has one of the greatest chins in boxing. I don't think anyone would argue with that. And you know what would happen if if he hit Joshua on the chin? I think I think he'd get a similar result that he got with Kalanaki, especially if he was as prepared as he was for the Kalanaki fight. So that that's an interesting fight to me. To me, anyone who fights Joshua, or you've you've got a great shot. And that that's that was what was so much fun about having those guys as champion. Well, Joshua's still a champion, but when you get Wilder, that are incredible offensive machines and still have some vulnerability, they make for the greatest fights, you know, and you know, they can beat anyone, but they can also lose it. So hopefully Robert gets that opportunity. I think he will, you know, but hopefully sooner rather than later. Right. It's the heavyweights. I mean, that's, that's why we watch them. That's why they're exciting, man. It's like one punch can, can change it all. So, but speaking of heavyweights and so on, let's uh, let's get into your background, man. Let's let's uh, talk about how you got into this thing. So let's let's start where it all began, man. In the Bronx, nineteen seventy-three. Yeah. Tell me about growing up in the Bronx. Well, no, I, I didn't grow up in the Bronx. I was born in the Bronx, and okay. um, then uh, I spent a couple of years in Queens. You know, and, uh, when I was four or five, we moved to a little suburb in New Jersey because, um, you know, my brother who's six years older than I, when he was like 11 years old, he was already, you know, there were gangs and all this sort of thing. And one day my mom saw him jumping from building top to building top you know, <laughs> as like 11, 11, 12 year old. And, you know, she panicked and she told my dad, look, we have to move. And we ended up going to a nice little suburb in New Jersey. And where that's where I grew up, you know. I, I think we moved there when I was maybe five years old, five or six. I can't remember, but that's where we grew up, and you know, it was terrific. And you know, I'm the son of immigrants, and um, you know, my um, my uh, my dad came here in his mid to late twenties. My mom was a little younger; she was a teenager in her late teens, maybe like eighteen years old, and. <clears throat> 
came over here with her mom and dad. And, you know, they were, my, my grandfather was a porter at the MetLife building. My grandmother used to, um, so where, know, do, hold on, where did they come up? where did they come from? Ellis Island from Spain. From Spain. Okay. Right. Both my mom and dad. And, um, you know, my, my, uh, like I said, my grandfather was a porter. My grandmother would clean up the office buildings at that same MetLife building. And my mom was a secretary, uh, there my dad was the dad was a foreman in a plastics um what is it there a display company on 34th street and you know no just uh grew up in, oh boxing i'm sorry i'm losing track here because i'm uh, getting text <laughs> but um how did i get into boxing was you know my dad had two favorite sports one was yelling and the other was boxing. So <laughs> I preferred the boxing and <laughs> gosh, sit on the weekends. Cause you know, my dad, you know, no, my, neither of my parents really any real, you know, formal education except for, you know, being great parents and, and working very hard and telling my brother and I to you know, be everything we could be. So I grew up watching boxing on the weekends with my dad. I just grew to love it. I wanted to, as soon as I was able to drive at like 16 or 16 and a half, I started going to the boxing gyms and, um, in, uh, uh, Patterson and in, Jer- in uh, Jersey city, you know, Rocky Marciano's gym, I think his brother Lou owned the gym and I was able to do that, you know, I'd, I'd, be at the, I'd spend as much time at the gym as I could. And I started doing a little, and a little fighting and I'd, you know, come home and I'd have to hide the black eyes, you know, for my mom, I'd run upstairs because I wouldn't want them to see what I was doing. I remember doing. doing the same thing, yeah. You had to hide from mom, man, the split lips and everything. <laughs> that, well, because you have to understand the immigrant mentality, you know, I had two wonderful, very loving parents and my mom would always tell me and my brother, look, you have to be something in this country. You know, it's very hard. You don't want anyone to step on you. I and mean, she just kept banging us. You have to be a doctor or a lawyer in this country, doctor or a lawyer, doctor or a lawyer. So imagine, you know, I'm going to the boxing gyms, you know, could you imagine, you know, boxer, but I wanted to be a boxer, you know, ever since I was a little kid. And ultimately I ended up, ended up having a couple of fights in tough man. And, you know, this sort of thing. I had about two dozen fights, but um, I wanted to be a boxer. But, you know, my ability or my aspiration wasn't as good as my ability. You know, <laughs> so, you know I, went, I went 11 and 11. You know, I was a 50-50 guy. But, um, you know, I, it was something I loved. I did it from maybe 16 to 22. Um, but in the process, you know, I got to meet a lot of folks, uh, including my first guy, my first client ever was like a brother to me, Jamil McCline. You know, I met him and, um, gosh, we were going maybe when I was 19 or 20 years old, I, I can't even remember, but I started going to the gym with him. He was two, two and one. And, uh, we just became great friends and, and started working together. And that was the same time that he, that was the same time that he took on a new manager, Alan Wartsky. Who you know personally. Absolutely. Alan's a great guy. Wonderful yeah. human being. Yeah, the most generous human being, him and his brother. And Jay, we also you shout became, out Jay. That's right. <laughs> Jay yeah, Wardsky. <laughs> we all became like a little family. You know, maybe I was, I couldn't have been more than 21 years old. And um, 
I was hanging out with Jamil, who really was just a sparring partner for all the guys at the, uh, camp, you know, with, uh, he was sparring for Galata and for Kurt Shabalala and Gary Bell and a bunch of other guys they had. I think they had Kirk Johnson. I can't remember, but, um, you know, my intro was that. And I became great friends when I was a young kid with Jamil, with Kurt Shabalala, with David Tua, and we'd all go hang out. In you know there was in Wayne this one bar called Docks and they had great Tuesday and Thursday nights and we'd all go clubbing together and hanging out and you can imagine as a kid you know you're hanging out with David too and Shabalala and Jamil and all these pros and that was sort of my introduction and you know I, I think I was still in college at the time um, or maybe just finishing college yeah I was 20 or 21 years old. And, you know, I, I had, I, you know, I, I wanted to still be in boxing and, you know, my mom kept telling me, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a doctor, be a lawyer. By this time, my brother had gone into medical school and I said, yes, I, you know, I, I want to do something in boxing, but I, you know, I can't disappoint my mom. She was very good at making us feel very guilty if we didn't do, you know, <laughs> what we to do. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to be in boxing anyway. What's the difference? I'll just apply to some law schools here in Jersey. So, you know, I applied to Rutgers. I applied to Seton Hall. All while I was, you know, just hanging out with my friends and, and just having a great time. Like, I remember, just to put perspective on this, we would uh, rented a, uh, a carriage house, this beautiful mansion, but a little carriage house over the garage of this uh, Nigerian doctor. And he was a huge boxing fan. And he used to have the biggest fight parties, you know, when Mike Tyson would fight or Holyfield or all this thing. And I remember clear as yesterday, a little 16 or 17 year old, he still didn't turn pro. Zab Judah was coming and he was DJing, you know? <laughs> and, you know, no one knew who was yet, but, you know, he was coming and DJing at the party. And, and it was just a great atmosphere, you know, with all the fighters of, you know, 25 years ago, whatever it was, I guess this was in like, 96 or 97 98 because these were all the guys that came out of the 96 olympic team you know and um we were just all hanging out and having a great time and and it was one of the best times of my life but that was that was my intro just being a young kid with all these young superstars and you know you know been to a club with these guys like courage and david and um and just uh you know just uh it's very nostalgic just talking about it, but we, you know, had a great time and, and that was my intro. And at that point, like I said, I started applying to law schools and I got into all the schools I applied to, including some out of the state, like Fordham and some other schools, but, you know, I wanted to stay in Jersey and hang out with all my pals. So I ended up going to Seton Hall Law School and, uh, you know, I, as a, as a first year student in like 97, you know, I was done. My tough man days were over and I was getting asked by all these young guys. Hey, can you look at my contract? Can you look at this? Can you look at that? I was a first year student. You know, I didn't know anything, you know, but, <laughs> but you know, I knew that I knew more than they did at that time. Cause at least I was getting the, you know, contracts one Oh one and all this sort of thing. You know, you think, you know, everything taking one course <laughs> and, um, you know, it just sort of all springboarded from there. And, you know, with Jamil, for instance, we just both got into the Hall of Fame together last November, New Jersey Boxing Hall of Fame. And we had over 60 fights together with no contract, which, you know, no one, you know, you just don't hear about that. And these days, you know, 
And um, that's pretty much what it's been for me. It's just been a labor of love. I've never felt like I've worked. I've, you know, I've represented just about every heavyweight that lost to Klitschko over the last decade. That they were champion. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah. I it's... I have... Go ahead. I, I... Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to no, say. I was just going to say, I think just getting from to back to your point in the beginning, I think I've had such a good career and such a great rapport because it comes, my love of this sport comes from a place of, look, I, was born in the Bronx. I'm son of immigrants to this country. You know, there's been ver- spots in my life that have been very difficult. And, you know, for the most part, you don't, you know, for every Mike Lee that I represent, you know, I represent two or three dozen people that, you know, were like me, born in the Bronx, son of immigrants, you know, and I think I can relate to the desire, the hunger and, and the wanting to make something better of yourself. And I think that's, that's been my secret sauce that I can relate. And, you know, and that's, uh, that's pretty much been it. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to get into, cause you've definitely represented a lot of great heavyweights, but I, you know, I don't want to leave out, you know, the, you know, Omar Sheikha and Georgie Tehran and, you know, Ola Afalabi, you, you had some, some really good fighters in other weight classes as well coming up, but um, there was a particular stretch, and, and dude, I remember writing to uh, to one of the boxing writers. I'm like, you know, I said, listen, because I think it was like from October 2006 to October 2007, you had Monty Barrett, and you had already gotten Barrett like a shot in 2005, I think, at Hasim Rockman for the interim BC title. But then you get him, you know, a year later, you get him without any tune-ups. You got him in there with a Valuev for the BA title, gave a decent account of himself. That was October 2006. November 2006, you got Shannon Briggs in with uh, Sergei Lyakovich for the BO title. Um, Shannon wins that one on a a dramatic last-second knockout. And there was a whole drama behind that because I remember... Cedric uh, ended up suing uh, Shelly Finkel because there was a, a fight with that Shannon was supposed to get with Klitschko for the IBF, but it, it ended up not happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I was named as a witness of that lawsuit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I remember the, the, there's, a, there's a legal opinion out there, and you, you are mentioned in that, yeah. uh, that, that you assigned uh, you know, Cedric the right to, uh, to negotiate it. But, yeah. but then, all right, so that, yeah. was, that was November 2006. March of 2007... You get Ray Austin in with Klitschko uh, for the IBF, and you know he got blasted out in two rounds, but uh, still, um, that was March. Or I left out in January of 2007. Um, you had gotten uh, Jamil another shot at uh, at uh, Value F against Value F in a yeah. fight. I know you you knew he was going to win that, and then his knee blows out. And I, I remember you being just completely fucking bummed about that one, but. Uh, but so then, all right, so so January, McLean, Valuev, March, Austin against Klitschko. Then in June you had, uh, of 2007, you had Briggs in, uh, he fought uh, Sultan uh, Ibrahimov in what was one of the most boring fights I've ever seen. But I- Ibrahimov uh, came away with the title from Shannon. Um, and then October 6, 2007, you got Jamil back in for the, for the BC title against Sam Peter um, in a fight yeah. that, holy shit, he came so close. Three knockdowns. Oh, yeah. Once Put him down once in the second and twice in the third, but couldn't finish him. But that's 
So so we're going October 7, 2006 to October 6, 2007. That's like a calendar year. You've got like, you know, five, six title fights for four different guys. I mean, it was a fucking amazing run, dude. So talk about that a little bit, that yeah, period. Well, first of all, I'm going to give credit to with McCline and Briggs, especially my partner, Scott Hirsch, because McCline, th- th- this is, you know, McCline, I'll never forget. We were... We were going to re-up with Cedric Kushner, and uh, we had one fight left on his contract. And at those, at that time, you know, there's good, there's always good periods and bad periods in boxing. And that period was pretty good period. You know, there was a lot of money floating around in the sport, and we had some negotiated some outrageous, outrageous um, uh, signing bonus to re-up uh, with CKP. And as hard as I tried, I couldn't get them to sign before the fight. You know, we were getting ready to fight Zuri Lawrence in, in Florida at the Hard Rock, and I couldn't get them to them wire meaning, the money. Them meaning McCline or CKP? No, to re-sign McCline. I couldn't get them to send the signing bonus before the fight. You know, oh, I tried, Cedric, I Cedric, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and it, it was an enormous amount of money. I mean, we, we're talking enormous. So, I... You know, we end up doing the thing. Jamil says, ah, don't worry, I'm fighting Zuri Lawrence. Right? And when someone says, don't worry, you know, the first thing I do is start to work. <laughs> Famous last word. <laughs> Obviously, you know, we go in and we must be a 30 to 1 favorite, you know. And we, and we lose a decision to, uh, to Zuri Lawrence. So I, I, don't, I don't have the box rack. I don't remember what year it was. But I, I, think, I, just, I think I just had my, my triplets. It might have been... 13 years ago. I, I, you know, I don't know, but anyway, um, we lose the fight. We're in Florida. We're sitting there. We can't believe it. And this guy walks up to me and uh, his name was Scott Hirsch and he had just signed Shannon Briggs. And, you know, I was part of that and we only just met and Scott starts talking to me and obviously he doesn't know. We just missed out on this huge signing bonus. And he says, you know, like, um, Jamil should do this and he should have done that. And he should have stepped behind the jab. You know, he's telling me all these things. And I'm thinking, oh, God, I really want to hear this now. Like what he should have done. We just lost so much money. <laughs> I never told the story in public. So he says, um, you know, I, I'd really like to get involved with Jamil. And I'm thinking, is this guy nuts? He just lost to Zuri Lawrence. You know what I mean? I didn't really know that So he says, um, what are you, are you interested? I said, yeah, yeah, whatever. So he says, why don't you come by my house tomorrow morning? So I said, um, uh, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking anything's going to come of it. I pull into this house and it's, you know, one of the most magnificent homes you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and I go in and we sit and we start talking and he, you know, he's telling me again, he should have done this. He should have done that. And this, and I'm like, okay, yeah, that's great. And he says, you know, I'd, I'd like to get involved. You know, what, what do I have to do? And I said, involved with Jamil? You know, I'm thinking, who the hell would want to get involved? He just lost it again. He just lost it. <laughs> so he said, um, yeah, I'd like to get involved. And, and uh, you know, just tell me what I have to do. And I said, I don't know. You know, uh, he's going to need some fights. He's probably going to need a little money. And I told him about the signing bonus. We missed this, that, the other. And he says, well, grabs his checkbook and he writes out a pretty big number. And I, you know, I, I was mentored by Cedric Kushner and I used one of his lines. I, he shows me the check and I think it's a joke. 
And I said, this is good for me, but what about my fighter? (laughs) (laughs) He summons his wife for the checkbook. She brings another check and she writes out this ridiculous check now for him, you know, and I have the original check. (laughs) And so an obscene amount of money, like honestly, like near what we were going to get as a bonus. One check for me, one check for him. And I said to him, and this is how our relationship started. I said, are you serious? He goes, yeah, just sure. Is that, is that enough? And I said, yeah, it's more than enough. He says, okay, so we're partners. I said, great, we're partners. <laughs> so I said, do you want a piece of paper, a contract? He goes, no, I, I trust you. So I just can't believe it. You know, I go outside immediately. I call Jamil. I tell him the story. I can't believe it. He says, get that chip off of me right now. You know? <laughs> so we, we called him, and that started a relationship with one of the most decent giving wonderful human beings. And that's Scott Hirsch. And he should be listed for manager of the year as well, because he's done fantastic job. But, you know, he had uh, during that period, we both worked with Shannon, we both worked with Jamil. And honestly, without Scott, I certainly couldn't have done it with Jamil because, you know, we went back on the circuit right. and he let sort of he let Jamil get his sea legs back on there. And, you know, we got on ESPN and we got on uh, whatever. I think we did some show box. So we, we got like 10 fights in a row and you know that's not an inexpensive proposition and then that um put us into the two world title fights i guess against peter and value but really scott hirsch is one of the greatest friends that a fighter can have and and you know he had it with uh with shannon and with jameel they were both very lucky to have uh scott in his corner and you know that was that was pretty much that but that was uh there's a lot of stories there between, you know, doing the negotiations with Don King for Lyakovich and, you know, getting away from the Klitschko fight, which we were originally slated to do at the garden, but they were dragging their feet. Um, but yeah, it was just, it, it is what it is. It's just the grind and it's one after the other. And this is a very tough business you know, to go 25 some years and, and earn a living and, and not have your fighters hate you. <laughs> Actually, it's the opposite. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know if that, if that got to that question, but, uh, you know. No, no doubt. No doubt. Well, listen, you, you mentioned two names there who I, who I know you had a lot of interaction with and have some awesome stories, but uh, start with Cedric Kushner. Um, when did you first uh, meet up with Cedric and, and uh, when did you start doing business with him and, and tell people uh, how, how, how it worked with Ced? I think, look, I may be off by months. Because we went, it was me, Alan, and Jamil, and we went and we sat and met with Cedric Kushner. And um, uh, he was running at that point. I don't know if he started his Thunderbox or heavyweight explosion. He had the heavyweight explosion. And he said, you know, I can get you some exposure on these shows. And I think it was 97, 97 or 98. And so we signed with Cedric. We did some small fights. We did some small fights on the heavyweight explosion with guys like Sherman Williams and Cedric Fields and Ron Guerrero. Oh, man. And so, we did, yeah, we did those little circuit fights. And then we got a call. And Cedric called. And, you know, he had just re-signed Michael Grant or, or just signed him for the first time, I should say, after the Lennox Lewis fight. And I think, you know, Again, Michael Grant got an enormous bonus. He got a big bonus to sign with CKP. And, you know, I don't think they thought anything of Jamil, including Cedric. Um, And he said, you know, why don't you you guys fight Michael Grant, you know? So 
we jumped all over it. And, you know, it's actually, this part's an interesting story because, you know, um, he fought Al Cole, the fight before Michael Grant. I think seven or eight weeks later, we fought Grant. So he was just, Jamil was in such great shape. Now to Vegas. And that was in 2000. So it was 20 years ago. I was 26 years old. I was fresh out of law school, maybe a year out of law school. And I remember we're in Las Vegas and I saw the board and it said McCline nine to one underdog. So I, I talked to my wife and new wife, you know, we got married, we just got married. And I said, look, I'm, it's nine to one. I'm going to put a bet on Jamil. So she said, are you sure? I said, yeah. So I went to my ATM and, uh, I saw I had no money in the account. So then I went to the window <laughs> and I, I, I had a credit card and I said, how much can I take on my credit card? And this is, you know, I was fresh out of law school. I, I had six, six figures in school loans <laughs> and, you know, just no money whatsoever. So, uh, I could get a $2,000 cash advance. I think it was 2,200. So I took the 2,200 and I put it on my guy you know, and I don't even know if we can do that <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, you know what happened in the fight? He got a first round knockout and yeah, he rushed you know, him. He rushed Jameel, him first, Jameel first bunch of the fight, the dropped him. Yeah. I think, I think Jamil put like five or six grand on himself and Alan put like five grand. On. So between all of us, I think we made like $200,000 that night. So you can't imagine <laughs> the party we had, you know, after Jamil got the first round knockout. But anyway, after, you know, Cedric, he was down in the dumps. That was, that was, um, at that point I'd known him for three or four years. And, um, but you know, obviously we had, we had a great relationship. We were all like family, you know, including Jamil, uh, with Cedric and everybody. And we went on and gosh, I guess we were with Cedric until for a long time. I can't remember when, but for a long time, but, um, the point is with Cedric, he and I became personal friends. And, um, you know, that was at a time, like I said, I was 25 and right out of law school and, you know, really have any money whatsoever. My wife and I were living in a terrible apartment in Bloomfield, New Jersey. And he was kind enough that I guess, you know, we, we got along so well and he would invite me to the Hamptons and my wife, the new wife then, and our dogs, and we would hang out in his place, and he wouldn't even be home, you know, and he had 13 cars, all red, had Bentleys, <laughs> he had Ferraris, he had Porsches, and he would just leave the keys, and he would say, Mike, you and your wife have a good time, you know, and he was just wonderful, you know, a lot of people, you know, there, there's, I think the people that were close to Cedric really love him, and, you know, there's some people that obviously, you know, it's boxing, and people talk negatively about one another, but I can tell you, he had a great heart. You know, he was a great human being and, and, you know, you could do a fair deal with Cedric for a fighter where, you know, you couldn't with other promoters. I'm not going to name names, but you know, the ones, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure you're dealing too with him. You know, he was always a very fair guy to work with. And, oh, and absolutely. A decent human being. Gentlemen. And, and we had a group of friends. It was me, Alan Wartsky, Jay Roy Langboard, um, Walter Kane, um, the Hydes, you know, Milton and Stephen Hyde. Uh, we had a pretty big Bob Cohen. We had a big group and, and Cedric was uh, sort of the glue would keep us together because we'd always go out to go meet up and, and say hi to Ced, especially in the later years. But Cedric really became like a mentor to me and, and he really you know showed me the ropes and, and I learned a lot 
a lot from Cedric. And, um, you know, that's it. My, my kids, fortunately, you know, got to know him and would call him Uncle Ced, and he would come by the house all the time. But he was, you know, he was always wonderful to me. I have very fond memories of him, and, you know, I miss um, But that's it. That's, uh, that's basically it. I came to know Cedric through Jamil. Right. Cedric, yeah. Cedric had such a wicked sense of humor, too. I love, I love oh. hanging out with Ced, man. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell the... I can't tell the stories on a podcast. They're X-rated, you know. But you know, I remember. <laughs> yeah, well, you could tell the stories on the podcast if you wanted to. <laughs> but maybe to, to protect the innocent, you probably should hold off. <laughs> I'm gonna. Uh, up. <laughs> it's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Sid was a character, man. Loved him. So the the other name you mentioned there was Don King. Now with with Jamil, um, did you? Because did I mean I know he fought Chris Bird for the title at, at at one point in time. Did you have to give up options to DK? Is is that how you ended up uh, working with DK, or, or how um, did you end up hooking up with him? You know, I'll tell you one thing I learned about Don and, you know, we, it was, with, with, it was tough in the beginning because everything, you know, Don, everything always seemed to end in like litigation, you know, it right. was very tough. Absolutely. Don, Contracts you know, did not mean Don, much to Don. <laughs> but you know what? Now, 25 years later, in a perverse sense, I admire him now because what I've learned over the, the first, it, Oh, you're cutting out a little bit. First 10, 15 years. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you. The, the first 15 years was very rocky with Don, the first 10, 15 years. The last 10 years, I've had a great relationship with him because I really got to understand him. You know, the, the crazy thing about Don is, and once you learn this, I think it's a secret to doing business with him. His handshake really is good. I mean, his handshake is better than a contract. One thing I've always, what I've learned with him is when you hold him to his word, when you remind him, you gave me your word, when you shake on it and you don't have a contract, in my mind, it's better than having a contract and trying to enforce the contract. Because every time I've said to him, but Don, we've shaken on it and you gave your word. He fucking keeps his word, you know? <laughs> and secret I found keeps his word as unbelievable as that sounds because there's so many horror stories out there he keeps his word i mean i don't know if that's been your experience but he keeps his word so he's right you don't get what you're worth you get what you negotiate but with him unless you have a very strong advocate in your corner meaning a fighter you know you're going to have a tough go because you know he's he's one of the smartest men i've ever met in my life <laughs> yeah he is and, and very sophisticated very 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 and, smart and, and like the the toughest negotiator you're ever going to to encounter because he will fight you yeah, for every last dime and and you know he he, he won't be moved yeah. if he doesn't want to be moved but, but will you agree with me there when you agree to something you can hold them to it um, yeah, I mean, you know, I made sure everything was papered. <laughs> right. I, I, I didn't do any handshake deals with Don, but um, yeah, I mean, listen, you know, like you said, with the contracts, he wasn't so great, you know, um, and also, you know, it, you know, we, we got off to a really bad, bad start because I think uh, 
you know, uh, the fighters that I worked with, you know, they had been with his son, Carl, and they ended up coming to me. So uh, I think he, uh, you know, there, there, there was some resentment there. Well, that, so. that, that, that relationship poisoned the well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, but, but listen, uh, I mean, he, uh, you know, the guys I had with them, you know, they, they fought and they, they fought for titles and they won titles. So you can't, you can't argue with that, you know, Corey and, uh, no, look, I, and I always Sims. look at the, 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 um, I think John Ruiz is a great example. I remember looking at, looking through some court papers and I can't remember if he made 40 million, whatever he made, it was an absurd amount of money. And I just thought, you know what? I don't know what Don made. He probably made 100 or 150, you know, right. whatever he made, Ruiz <laughs> made, I'm sure Don made, you know, or more. Right. But in that case, he was worth every penny, you know? Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, there, there, there's, there's, I think there's a lot of fighters that have benefited. Now, look, I'm not painting a rosy picture here. It's not easy to deal with Don, but I think once you get to know him, it becomes easier. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. You know, it becomes right. easier. Right, right, right. And, but it's, but it's, it's certainly no picnic because, like you said, he's a very tough negotiator. <laughs> I think I remember you telling me some story where, where you guys got into this huge argument. And he was just like screaming at you, and, and you just like said, "Fuck, I got to do something to, to 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 calm him down or stop this." And you just like bang your hands on the table and just like, you know, you can yell at me a million times, dude. Right, he said, "You know, we walked into the suite at the Michelangelo, and it was uh, I walked, through, you know, at that point, you know, Roy, what he, he Roy used to be the president of Showtime Boxing." And um, I don't think he was too far removed from that position. I'm sorry, and you you, you, you the, blotted out there. Give give the name again. Is Roy Langboard? The Roy Langboard. Yes, yes. Go ahead. So you know, I used to run Showtime Boxing, and um, I don't think he was too far removed from that position. I I, I think I, I think it was over Ray Austin with Klitschko. I don't remember, but it was yeah. I think that was what it was. I walked into the suite because um, our mutual friend Scott Hirsch, Don and mine, said, you know, you guys, you got to work this out. So he set up a meeting, or maybe Roy set up a meeting. God, now I can't remember. But we go to a suite at the Michelangelo, and as soon as I walk in, hang on, uh, there he is, a no good motherfucker. Fuck you, you no good piece of shit, motherfucker. This is just no good. I say, charge, he'll stab you in the back, and da da da. So he goes, and I thought, oh my God. This is so fucking embarrassing, but I, what am I going to do? I, you know, I walk out, do I punch him in the pit? You know, <laughs> so I he just verbally just abuse him. You know, good piece of shit. You should be dead. Motherfucker. You know? <laughs> so I just pounded the table and I, and I pounded it so hard. I think it cracked the table and he stopped. And I said, Don, I can't take this anymore. If you curse me out another hundred times, I may walk out of this fucking room. You know, may. <laughs> Big his ass and I'm, you know, yeah, you know, you're no good, but you, you're charming, you know. <laughs> so he just, you know, we, we, we settled it there. And then, and I, you know what? It might have taken one more meeting in Switzerland during the climb value. But anyway, we ended up settling. And, and after that, you know, we got, we, we, um, our relationship changed. I don't know. We, we started getting, you know, I think maybe because because of Scott Hirsch, he he mended that fence. But um, and Roy, 
But um, yeah, yeah, it was it was funny, you know, sometimes. But there, there's there was a lot of great moments with Don, you know, especially when Don has a few drinks. <laughs> <laughs> all right well let's 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 fast forward it a couple you know, of, I, you know what, I, what I do I make with Don and Don how you doing I gave him a great hug and I said what's the matter he goes eh Mike you know I love you Mike I love you I just don't like your evil ways <laughs> that's what I knew I, I made it you know exactly I'm <laughs> well, calling me evil I'm doing my job for my clients you know absolutely absolutely I remember Eric, Eric Botcher used to be his uh, matchmaker and I saw Eric at the fights one time while he was working for Don and uh, someone had asked me my name for I don't know someone in the press asked me my name and I said Kurt Emhoff and and uh, Botcher's just like, that's not how it's pronounced, man. He's like, that's not how Don King pronounced it. I'm like, how's Don pronouncing? He's like, Kurt motherfucking Emhoff. <laughs> right. Listen, when Don King calls you a motherfucker, you've made it. So right. It me. means you're doing your job, you know. You're, you're representing you're your, your fighters. Job. Yeah, you're not just being a doormat. Um, so, yeah, listen, let's let's fast forward a couple of years, um, you know, post uh, Jameel and so on. You, you took on more of a kind of almost a dream job, I'd say. I mean, most most people who work in boxing, you know, you kind of work your way up. And, uh, you know, the, the, the plum jobs are the, the ones at, like, Showtime and, and you know, HBO and, and uh, well, mostly Showtime and HBO at that point in time, where, where you're actually picking the bouts. You know, you get to, to, to do the matchmaking and, and picking the bouts for a network. And you got to do that for uh, Epics for uh, for a, a period of time, uh, 2011 or so. So talk about that. Yeah, you know, I had um, Mark Greenberg was the president of Epics, and he also, you know, he was at Showtime along with Roy Langbord during the <clears throat> all the big years at the Showtime, Jay Larkin you know, years, Mike yeah, <laughs> yeah, Tyson Holyfield one and two, and all these big fights on pay per view. And, um, you know, Mark was a big boxing fan. Yeah. I think he also understood the power of, of having boxing on a premium pay channel. You know, you just create a niche, right? You have a big, pretty big boxing, sizable boxing audience out there and more important, loyal boxing audience. And I think he was trying to, well, I know he was trying to bring that to epics, but you know, it was still in its early stages. So I don't think they were committed to having, you know, uh, 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 big boxing staff there, you know, so they outsourced <clears throat> quite a bit. And one of the consultants there at the time was Roy Langbord, who, like I said, was over at Showtime. And, uh, you know, Roy asked me if I had any contacts overseas. And, you know, early on, I think I did some legal work with Wilford Sauerland, and I was doing a lot of title fights there. Um, uh, so I had a great relationship with Sauerland and with Universum and some of the groups. And, I said, yeah, I have great contacts overseas. And he said, I'm thinking about showing some fights uh, on Epics, you know. And I thought this is, there was no DAZN yet. There was no um, Fox. Uh, It was just HBO and Showtime, you know, the same two. And you had so many great fights and fighters overseas that you'd never see in the U.S., you know, unless you you caught something on YouTube. Um, So... You know, I had an idea to bring uh, premium content at, you know, a majorly discounted price because, you know, 
like if you go sell a boxing show overseas, you know, for territories, you're getting two grand, you're getting five grand, you're getting nothing. Right. So one, any as, new as Cedric movie, used to say, onesies and twosies. Yeah. <laughs> onesies and twosies. So, so, you know, when you, when you get a, a, a certain number, anything looks great, you know, and, and the budgets were good. You know, they weren't HBO or Showtime budgets. They were reasonable. But, you know, I was able to deliver for a period of three and a half years some very good content. It was just Lou DeBell and I who were providing uh, all of Epic's uh, boxing programming. And um, <clears throat> I reached out to Sarolin and some, some other contacts out in the, in Europe, and, and we brought a lot of their product here. In fact, you know, I, I showed a couple of Robert Hellenius fights. I was very high on Robert <clears throat> going back to 2010, 2011. We showed that. We showed a bunch of Povetkin fights when he was a WBA champion. We showed uh, Arthur Abraham fights, Stiglitz. Um, you know, I think I, I'm pretty sure I was the first one to bring Triple G. Uh, we put him on Epics too. He was his first premium pay channel fight in the U.S. was on Epics, and um, you know, we did a lot of great things. Uh, Lou was delivering a bunch of the Klitschko fights. I think he did. Walk Klitschko and on the same show I did Hellenius and I think Chisora but we did a split telecast where we did uh, uh, he had Walk Klitschko from I forget where they were and we were like in Hamburg or something and we did the you know split site site telecast and we did a tremendous amount of terrific shows. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I don't think the higher ups, I mean, the high, higher ups beyond epics, you know, at, at, um, we're crazy about boxing and ultimately, you know, I had a shot. I almost got it back with the, um, with the world boxing super series. Uh, I almost got it back when they did the inaugural year with the cruiserweights and I got with Roy's help, got them to put a pretty strong offer in on the series, but you know, the investors had another idea. And at that time, Richard Schaefer was a consultant, as was Callis Sauerland. And, and I think they wanted the deal. And uh, I don't think they had television the first year with the World Boxing Super Series, but it, it almost not got US, on Epics. Yeah, not U.S. That's right. Yeah, it almost got on the Epics, which would have been fantastic. And I know Richard wanted to do the deal and Kelly wanted to do the deal. The investors didn't. And it was, you know, the most money Epics would have paid for for um boxing telecast to that point and that was pretty recently um so that's a shame i think it, it, it would have you know uh it developed into something very good for the network um but um you know it is what it is now you've still got fox uh the zone and showtime and all the competition is and, and espn and all the competition is very good right now you know it's very good for the fighters yeah, it's it's a great time to be a boxing manager in the sport, Mike. There's a lot of money out there for the fighters. So. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's really great. So bringing it back to to present time, you know, obviously, you know, you you have uh, Charles Martin and and Robert Helaney is very well positioned. Uh, you know, basically, you know, right, right, either mandatories or or you know, about to fight for a mandatory position. Um, you've also got a. Yeah, I was going to say, you've got another great heavyweight, unbeaten uh, Frank Sanchez. Talk about how you hooked up with Frank and, and what are your plans for him? Well, Frank's an interesting story. He actually called me 
he wanted to hire me as a lawyer because he was having some issues, some contractual issues. And, um, you know, in the very end, he ended up buying out of his um, original agreement and we ended up structuring something. So, you know, we immediately got him on, on, um, uh, he did back to back. I think it was Fox and Showtime. You know, he fought Mulawai on, on short notice on Showtime. He took it on like a week's notice and ended up going 10 rounds. And um, most recently, uh, I think it was the last show PBC did before um, going dark. He fought Joey DeWaco on um, on Fox, on regular Fox, and he pitched a shutout. And, you know, Joey doesn't look like a world beater. He's a lot like Andy Ruiz, but people in boxing know that he can fight. And he pitched a 10-0 shutout against Joey. And, you know, if you look at Joey's history, he goes nine, nine, uh, six to four in rounds against real guys, you know, like Kuzman, Mansoor. So, you know, where some people look at that and say, oh, he couldn't knock out DeWaco. Well, not many people can. The only guy that has is Martin and uh, Charles Martin. And, um, yeah, he's gone to distance and given very tough fights to everybody. So I think that was a big positive for Frank to shut DeWaco out. DeWaco, you know, couldn't do anything in the fight. And I think, you know, most recently he's called out Mike Hunter and Joe Parker. And I'm waiting for Eddie. Hopefully he'll make us an offer on one of the two um, because uh, they couldn't make a deal with five. I don't think he's at number six. We're at number 10. And, and hopefully we can get that one done because, you know, he's one of these Cuban guys that he'll outbox anybody in the world, anybody, you know, and, and, and we'll see. Hopefully we get him in soon, but he's, He's chomping at the bit. He's so desperate to fight one of the top guys and prove what he is. Um, you know, he's asked for every name, Ruiz, uh, Parker, Usyk. Um, you know, ho- hopefully Usyk picks up a vacated belt in the BO and we're right there and we can get in there with Usyk. So we'll wait and see, but I'm very excited about Frank. Yeah, he's, he's. I mean, he's a very athletic heavyweight, obviously has a great amateur pedigree. I mean, he, he definitely has potential to, to, to disrupt the division, man. He's a guy who people should not sleep on. That's that's definitely a guy who, uh, you know, uh, when you look at all these big heavyweights, you know, like Fury and Joshua and, and Wilder, I always think, you know, if you just had a guy who was athletic and had some hand speed um, and who, who wasn't built like Andy Ruiz, who was actually in shape, um, you could really do something, and, and and Sanchez seems to really fit the bill, dude. I think you got to. He's the kind of guy. He's very sneaky in the sense that, you know, he's the kind of guy that you wake up in a fight in round ten and you think, oh my god, it's round ten, and now you're down ten zero in points. You know, right? Ten <laughs> zero right. in rounds. And it's it's very. I wouldn't want. Look, no one wants to fight right now. People, nobody wants to fight Mike Hunter. Right. And for me, Hunter is perfect. Hunter right. is not going to outbox. Frank Sanchez. And I think, I think personally, Frank wins every single round against Mike Hunter. And he's a guy right now that, you know, he's a smaller heavyweight. No one really wants to get into because he's hard to hit. And he's and he quick. Yeah. Right. And he's quick, but you know, let's see how he does with the guy with real pedigree and, and, and will to win. You know, I, that's a fight I'm dying to take. Oh, uh, Hunter and Hunter's a, guy that, Hunter's a guy no one wants to fight. So to me, it's a natural. You got two guys no one wants to fight. There you go. There you go. That's great that you're willing to to risk them in that fight. That's a great fight. Um, another fight. What's that? Go ahead. I don't see it as a risk. But, you know, every fight's a risk, but I, I don't see it as a big big risk. Right. That you feel you got the edge in that one, so that's great. I feel we have the edge in every check check off every box in that one. <laughs> 
Wow. Let's hope it gets done. Another fighter you're working with who uh, was a little, I mean, not not a little bit, very much a hard luck fighter, Matt Korobov. Um, you know, really close fight with uh, with Charlo. Could have went either way. Um, then has another fight. It, looked, you know, it appeared that he won it against Aleem. And, you know, he did win it. And then they go back and change the cards. <laughs> and it's a draw. And then he gets in with Eubank in a fight. I know you thought he was he, he could win that fight, yeah. and looked like he was doing really well. And then his shoulder goes out. So what's what's going on with Matt? Well, look, Matt. By the way, I co-manage with Jamil McCline, so that's one of the great things about my relationship. Oh, with Jamil, wow, you Jamil's know. managing. Yeah, okay. boxing, we've co-managed Tony Thompson. We've co-managed quite a bit, quite a few fighters. Um, you know. Um, I'd like to tell you Jamil does all the work, but he doesn't. I do. <laughs> but all joking aside, I know he, you know when he's a master, he's great at bringing talent. You know he knows he knows what he's looking at, and he's just the greatest scout anyone can ever hope for. So and and who's going to say no to Jamil McClyde? Six six two two eighty. He is no, but he's a great talent scout. You know, and it goes to show you the relationship we've had is like a, and a really nice you know? guy too. Oh my God. So anyway, um, yeah, you know, he had a lot of tough luck coming up and I thought, you know, luck was going to shoot because we got a last minute call to fight Charlo on a week's notice. I think he squeaked it out seven to five, but, um, you know, it is what it is. You know, I thought he beat Charlo. Um, 12 months later, we got back in position to fight, uh, Eubank junior and you know i mean you saw in the first round that the difference in class was you know it was it was i thought it was pretty apparent that that you know matt was just at another level you know um unfortunately his shoulder you know he, he tore a um the rotator cuff and some other ligament <sighs> and he went we got because you know he's he's not as young anymore so we went and actually got three different opinions from three highly regarded surgeons um two of them recommended no surgery because of the location of the tear with the um, i don't know however they propped his arm up you know and i guess like a sling or a cast they two of the surgeons thought it's going to heal better on its own and one recommended surgery you know we went with the numbers we went with the two surgeons that said because of his age and all this sort of thing, you're better off. Just let it heal on its own. It's going to take a good six months, you know, but, but, you know, they gave us all the protocol, all the, all the physical therapy has to do, which he's been doing, you know, the swimming and all this. So now that was December, uh, December, early December, December, March, April. So now he's about four months in, I think he's got a solid two to go <clears throat> and, and you'll see him back in the ring. So hopefully he gets one more shot because he's, one of the most talented fighters I've ever seen. I mean, he, he has had some bad breaks. He even, even that draw with Aline, you know, he won no less than eight rounds in that right, fight. And right. He got right. He wins the fight. He wins the fight. And then like in WWE fashion, they say we have a mistake with the scorecards in West Virginia with the fighter, West Virginian fighter, whatever state we were in. I think it was Virginia. And they overturn it. They make it from a win to Korobov to a draw. <laughs> and yeah, so he's had some tough luck, but like I always tell Matt, look, all you can do is go up, you know, from here because you know it's like all the bad luck has been used up. But you know, when you say bad luck, he has fought for a world title three times. You know, and two of those were with me, 
And I told him I'm going to do everything I can to get him one more shot at the title, maybe a Benavides up at 68. You know, it's, it, it's not going to be an easy shot, but he's demonstrated with Charlo and in that two rounds with Eubank, he can outbox anyone in the world. I'm, I never worry about Matt in a boxing ring. So I'm just going to try and get him uh, that one more opportunity. So look for him to get, sorry about that. Look for him to get a win in late. Uh, sorry about that. Sorry. No worries. No worries. Look for him to get a win in uh, late, um, late this year. And then with a little luck, a title shot in 2021. One more. Right, right. No, definitely. A guy with a great, great amateur pedigree. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just a shame you didn't get to him earlier. You could have got It seems like with all that ability, you know, he should have been fighting, uh, you know, these fights that you're getting him a little earlier. But uh, but we'll see. Maybe he's got one more, one last great fight left in him. Well, listen, I, I've got one last question. You might you might laugh at this one, but so someone, uh, you know, like uh, when I, we we were talking about, or so I got a request basically from Twitter. Um, they want to know, um, you know, kind of just how the business works, and you know how each player in the business works. And there, there's, <laughs> he basically says he's like, I'd love to know how they make money, you know, uh, yeah. like people in the business, like how fights, you know, like like. You know how how tight the margins are and, and the interplay between like managers and promoters and fight negotiations. You know, basically, what is a day in the life of Kathy Duba or Abel Sanchez or Mike Barreo? So, what is a day in the well, life like with Mike Barreo when when you're when you're negotiating fights and, and just functioning as an advisor or a boxing manager? I mean, in the day in the life is interviews like these nonstop setting up. Interviews especially, you know, now during this quiet time, if you notice all my guys are, 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 are pretty prominently featured in the media and, you know, that's not by accident. Um, but when assuming we're not in this, uh, you know, period that we're in now where we're at home and, and under lockdown and no fights are going on, assuming a regular, normal, ordinary day, I mean, Look, you know what this business is. It's it's not an easy business. The margins are very small. Only the one or two percent really make money. So if you're not in that one or two percent, if you're not on the big networks on Fox, on the Zone, on Showtime, on ESPN, it's very tough. It's very tough to earn a living. Um, uh, but you know the one and two percenters earn a very good living. So you know, hopefully, the sport can find a way to flatten that curve, you know, right? and, um, and, and, and make it a little more fair. Cause look, a good example is I represent Mike and Alantes Fox. Alantes just fought Liam Williams in a final eliminator to the WBO this past December overseas. He came up short, you know, he'll be back. Um, his brother, Mike Fox, I don't know if you've seen him. He only has one loss. Well, both of these uh, guys are characterized by the fact that they're unbelievably tall for their weight class, right? I think like Alanta's like six five middleweight, and Mike's like a six yeah. three junior welterweight. Mike specifically, you know, his only loss was a razor thin decision loss on Showtime to uh, Ergashev, and you know, it was a terrific action fight, and. The point I'm making with these guys is Mike specifically is a young kid. He is one of the best pure boxers you've ever seen. I would make him a favorite over just about anyone 
uh, at 140 pounds. I mean, I, I mean, I would, I, 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 seven, you know, I, I think he beat anyone in the world, outbox anyone in the world. And, you know, we're signed with Marshall Kaufman, who you know, know very well. Of course. And, well, and right now he's doing that circuit of shows where, you know, the pay is terrible and he's fighting guys like Chop Chop Coralie and he just beat the, um, gosh, now I'm just getting old, Kurt. Who's the gold medalist top rank had? He just beat him um, recently. Um, I was, I, well, I can't pronounce his name even if I, it's like Fazlin yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> he's, got a, he's got a win over a gold medalist beaten Corley, he's lost a razor thin decision. He's now rated um uh by the WBA and I think the WBF. But <clears throat> he's a young kid grinding it out, one of the top guys in the division. And frankly, you know, his pay to this point has been minuscule, you know? Right. And I'm trying so hard to get that kid his opportunity because he deserves it and he can beat just about anyone in the world. But that's the that's the thing. You have to make that leap. You got to get through that one hurdle. And so for someone like him, it's a lot of work and you don't get anything back because I, you know, I work on the com. I don't I, I wait until my guy makes maybe 50 or 100,000 or something like this before I take any money because they're making so little money that, you know, I I feel terrible. Just, right. you know, my guy's going to make five grand. And I'm going to take five off his plate, you know, for whatever or whatever. So in that, you have two classes is what I'm saying. You got guys like that who he's on the cusp. I mean, he's going to be a superstar. I really believe that. I think he's going to be a world champion. He's going to make a lot of money, but you know, those guys you try and fight as often as possible. And so on that side, you're going to shows, you're going to events, you're planning events, you're staging events, you're setting up the interviews. That takes a good part of the day, those type of guys. And you're not seeing anything in the right. immediate. Right. And then you've got, you know, the Korobov, the Charles Martins, the Mike Lees, the Heleniuses, guys like this that, you know, obviously they're doing very well. They're fighting on pay-per-view. They're fighting on Fox. Right. They're and making six-figure paychecks. Right. Right. Correct. And, you know, in some cases, seven, you know. Right. Right. Um, and you have those guys and, you know, obviously you, you spend a little more time on that because you have, you know, um, um, there, there's more at risk if you do something wrong, you know, if you, right. if your guys are making higher, that's six, right. Right. If your guy's making five or six grand and you screw up a contract, not the end of the world, if he's making a million dollars and you screw something up, there's a problem, you know? <laughs> right. So a lot of the time is just spent on the phone, making phone calls, schmoozing people the weekends and late in the week, as you know, is spent traveling. You're going right. to the fights, you're checking in the hotel, you're getting on a flight, you know? So, you spend a good amount of time away from the home. And when you're away, you're setting up meetings, you're meeting with the sanctioning bodies, you're meeting with promoters, you're meeting with the television networks. So this is a life of taking care of tickets, taking care of, you know, credentials. I mean, just fight week is always hectic. There's always stuff going on. Yeah. (laughs) Correct. So, you know, that's, it's just really a, and by the way, I'm never going to complain again about the travel, about anything, because, you know, now we're all in lockdown and you realize what a privilege it is to go, to travel, to fly, to go to something as simple as a meeting, you know, you miss. And when you're doing it, you're thinking, God, I can't wait to be home. But when you're home for a month, like I've I've never been home for a month, you know, so this is (laughs) unusual. 
And when you're home for a month, you really realize that this box, this business is a drug. You know, I, I miss it. I miss the action, I miss going to the shows. I miss negotiating deals. And, and, um, you know, like I said earlier, hopefully everything works out and there's minimal loss of life and we get back to normal as quickly as possible. But, um, that's it. A day in the life in a nutshell, it's just being on the phone and, and, and traveling and, and, you know, trying to get these athletes who deserve it in the best situations and, and the best compensation, you know, the risk reward analysis that you've done, I do, and just try and put them in the best position possible while taking the smallest amount of risk and everything that goes on, you know, from A to Z to accomplish that. Absolutely. It's, it's a hustle, man. You're hustling and, and, you know, not, not many in the sport, uh, do it better than you, Mike. And, uh, Damn, dude, uh, you know, when we come out on the other side of this, uh, you know, can't wait to see uh, what, what your heavyweights do and uh, and wish you the best of luck and really appreciate you taking the time to talk, man. Uh, really appreciate it. I thank, I thank you. All right, my man. Well, I've got to I've got to run. I know you, you're busy. <laughs> the phone's ringing. Texts are coming in. So I will let you go. But, man, I really appreciate you taking the time, man, and, and take care and say hey to Lauren and, and the trips for me. You do the same and say hi to your lovely family. Talk soon. All right, my man. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast presented by The Ring and RingTV.com and distributed by the Leave It In The Ring Network. I'd like to thank Mike Moreo for taking the time out to speak with me. Really appreciate it. Um, if you like the podcast, please leave a comment or a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audio Boom, SoundCloud, or wherever you access the Boxing Esquire podcast. Really appreciate it as it helps new listeners find the podcast. And also, do not forget to check out my companion piece to this podcast on ringtv.com that will also feature quotes and background on this interview with Mike. And until next time, so long, everybody. Get what you was looking for?